<laughs> I don't know if, if, I think most of you know, because a lot of you are church members here, that, that I am from the South, that I am basically, I say basically, because technically I was born in Savannah, Georgia, and the Savannah side of my family always reminds me of that. But when I was, t- like, you guys are like, what's the difference? Two years later, I moved to Mississippi, and for the rest of my life, I grew up in Mississippi. Um, I am a Southerner, and I went to like I'm shaking to tell you, um, and, and also I'm also shaking because I know my Southern family is going to be listening to this online, so I have to be careful about the things that I say. But I also want to be honest; it was a very unique upbringing when I was raised in the South. You might not be able to tell because some people have told me I don't really have an accent, and I've I've noticed that I've kind of eliminated that accent over the years, and I've also tried to use larger words because most Southerners don't use those, and so it's harder to put an accent on them. Um, But when I was growing up, I did when I was, I found this video from when I was 12 years old, and I thought, oh, I've never had a Southern accent, I've been fine. Friends, this is exactly how I sounded. I was having a snowball fight, not in Mississippi, uh, on vacation, and this is how I sounded I, when I was, I'm afraid to tell you, when I was playing a snowball fight with my dad, I said, hey, Diddy, don't throw that snowball at me. That is how I sounded. That is in some sense who I am right now. I'm not like covering that on a regular basis, but that is who I am. That is the culture that I was raised in, a very specific white monoculture in the South that has some very unique things to it. Uh, Family reunions, we threw hatchets at trees. We had an Uncle Bob who believed in aliens. Um, I don't think any of my cousins got married, but you never know. There is a lot of different things going on in the South. Um, one of the things that I always took a lot of pride in was never wearing shoes. I, I know, I know. It was very weird, but I grew up near these woods, and I would play in the woods all day, and then I would go down. Uh, there was this reservoir, which was man-made and full of mud and is disgusting. And, again, hope my family's not listening because that's where they still live. And we, we would go over there, and I would be barefoot, and I would walk on the gravel, and it was a, a sign of pride that you were able to be barefoot and have these really tough calluses. Well, fast forward later, um, I married my wife, Benita, and if, if many of you know, Benita is, is it second generation Korean. Her family came over here before she was born. They moved to Alabama, I don't know why, and they had a child, they had two children, and one of them is my wife, Benita, and she was raised in that Korean culture, and we were married together. And there's a lot of things I've had to learn about the Korean culture. We have a mixed-race marriage, and so there's a lot of things I've had to learn. I remember one of the very first times I was visiting their family in Atlanta. Uh, I, I, they were like, here, we're going to have this wonderful food. And I was like, okay, because I'm like, I'm going to be adventurous. I'm going to fit in. I'm not this <laughs> lame white guy. I'm going to eat whatever it is that they put in front of me. And so, so Emma, that's our, uh, the name for grandma, is Benita's mom. She called me back into the kitchen by myself and was like, here, have a bite of this. And... And I looked at it, and it looked awful. And what it was was blood sausage. I don't know if you've ever had blood sausage before. It exists in a number of cultures. Basically, you boil blood and make it into a sausage. Excuse me. And so some people are really into it, and that's fine. Um, And I took a bite of it, and I almost vomited there on the Korean table with everybody around me. And I left, and my, my, my wife was in the other room, and she said, why did you do that? I was like, what? She's like, you don't ever eat the blood sausage. We, uh, I, mean, I get curious. I have lots and lots of fun stories. One of the things that I had to adjust to was, real quick, I had to take off my shoes when I came in the house, right? So um, Benita's telling me, 
and our kids, take off your shoes when you come in the house. And guess what I'm saying? When you go out of the house, take off your shoes. <laughs> so we have a very weird, mixed relationship. And um, there are lots of things that are difficult about it. And what we're looking at today is mixed-race marriages. And that's why Tommy was saying earlier, it makes sense that I would be able to preach on this or share some stories with you. We're going to look in Numbers chapter 12, and I encourage you, open your Bibles up to Numbers chapter 12 at Moses' mixed marriages. Um, and just in case you want to dig deeper into these things, I really do recommend the book that, uh, that Tommy and I have been using. It's called From Every People and Nation by J. Daniel Hayes. And you can ask us more about that later. So this is from Numbers chapter 12, and I've left my Bible over here. And I'm going to read the whole chapter for us just to give us the context, okay? Here we go. Moses, Moses chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses. Miriam and Aaron, of course, are are his siblings. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? (laughs) And the Lord heard it. Now the man, Moses, was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. That's not good. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days. And after that, she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I feel like there should be a subnote, and Miriam never said anything again, right? <laughs> so what we're going to look at today are uh, Moses' mixed marriages. Um, in fact, it looks like he had two different marriages that we're going to look at. Uh, then we're going to look at a black and white decision, a decision that is made, a judgment call that is made by Moses' family, his immediate blood relatives, and by the Lord, and we're going to guess which one we go with. And then the last thing we'll talk about is blood thicker than water. You probably already know that phrase, but we'll get more into it as we go. So, two marriages. Moses' first marriage was to a Midian woman named Zipporah. Um, when, let's just back, back up a little bit. Moses murders an Egyptian. You guys remember that? He murders an Egyptian, and what did he do right after he murdered that Egyptian? 
I hear him mumbling. I'm assuming you said he ran away. That's right. He flee. He fleed. He fle- he went away <laughs> to another. What is? He went away. And when he was running away, he was running away from his responsibilities in the Egyptian government. He was running away because someone saw him murder an Egyptian. He was running away from the Hebrew people. He's running away from Yahweh. And so when he is married, when he, he runs away, he runs to the land of Midian. And Midian is this Semitic group that's very similar in culture and ethnicity to the Israelite people. Um, and during this whole context of fleeing God is where he marries Zipporah, his first wife. The Midianites were ethnic cousins of Israel, but what is shocking about this marriage, when you look at who Moses is and who Moses becomes, is not the ethnicity of his first bride, but rather the fact that her father, Raul, is a priest of Midian. And Numbers 25 indicates that the Midianites were Baal worshippers. And so, in other words, Moses, the Moses, runs away from Egypt. He runs away from that Egyptian culture. He runs away from Yahweh and the Hebrew culture. And he runs over here and he marries into a family whose dad is the patriarch, is the priest of the religion of worshipping Baal. That is the scenario that's going on. Um, later in Exodus 18:12, God calls Moses back, and you know all that, right? The burning bush and things like that. And guess what he does with his, his, his Midianite woman, wife? He sends her back to Midianite. Later, Jethro comes um, and brings her back. Now, ironically, not long after the events of Exodus 18, the later the Midianites are going to be this deadly, deadly enemy that they have to defeat. And in fact, in Numbers 25, Tommy was talking about last Last week, the Midianite women we see in the Bible are luring Israelites into promiscuity and the worship of Baal. In fact, one of the last public acts of Moses is to completely destroy the Midianites. Wipe them off the face of the earth. I mean, I don't like my in-laws sometimes, but that seems pretty extreme. Um, Marriage number two is what we're talking about today. Now, some commentators say it's the same woman. But uh, generally, those are older commentators, and they don't have the more recent translations. Most commentators say this is clearly another woman, and and we're going to get into why it is. But one of the main reasons is that the first woman is said to be from the land of Midian. Her name is Zipporah. And later, we find out in this passage, the passage that we're reading today, that he's married. It says he's married a Cushite woman, which is a completely different region. Um, when we read Egyptian Assyrian literature, the land of Cush, Tommy talked some about this last time, is mentioned over and over again. We have a really good idea where the land of Cush is. It is basically southern Egypt. It is the land of Nubia. It's a land that was literally known in the ancient world for a group of people that was an African culture that existed for over 2,000 years, flourishing, and the people were known for having this beautiful, dark, dark skin. Um, the Greeks and the Romans referred to that area as Ethiopia. So this passage is very familiar to you, right? Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Have you heard that before? It's the same translation. Can the Cushite change his skin or the leopard his spots? And the idea of that passage is you cannot change yourself from the inside out. You need something outside of you. But they picked two extreme examples, right? A leopard cannot change its spots. It's a def- definition of who they are. And can a Cushite change their skin? A Cushite was defined as being from this region with, again, this very, very, very dark skin. 
And so we read here that he had married a Cushite woman. He had married a very, if you want to take the translation out, he married a woman from the blackest of civilizations possible. He married a black, black woman. He married a blue, black woman. If you've never seen someone this dark before, I encourage you, go online and look. I was visiting once in Spain, and down there near the um, is the Rock of Gibraltar, England still owns that for some reason, um, we were down there, and there were a number of folks that were coming over from Africa. I'd never seen someone with such dark, beautiful skin in my life. This is what we're talking about. So a black and white decision gets made. And we're going to look at what Moses' family does, and then we're going to look at what Yahweh does. Moses' family objects, right? They immediately object to what's going on. And the question for us today is, is why? And I think as we explore the text, you're going to see that it's, a, it's very, very clear why. One is maybe it was a power struggle. Maybe you have um, Moses and his brother Aaron and Miriam, and they are the core power that is in charge of this new group of people that is being um, exodusing and headed out to this new promised land. And by Moses marrying a new woman, remember Zipporah is gone. We don't know if she died or if if they were divorced. Or maybe Moses, according to the culture, was marrying a second wife. We're not sure. But it's clear that there's a power struggle that's going on. Something that's interesting that came up in my research is that in the Egyptian kingdoms, something that was very, very common for rulers to do, authorities to do, was to either do one of two things. One, marry your sister, or two, marry a foreign wife. And so maybe what's going on is Miriam is getting mad because of the culture she grew up in, and they've been in for hundreds of years. Moses has decided not to marry her and marry someone else. We don't know for sure um, what the cultural thing is going on here, but here's what we read. Verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because what? of the Cushite woman whom he had married. And then it repeats itself, for he had married a Cushite woman. When you see something in the Bible repeated twice, remember, they're writing on scrolls. Scrolls are not easily copied. Every word, and it's God's word, is there for a reason. So when you see something repeated like that, that is emphasis. It's, they don't have bold or italics or exclamation points or whatever we use, um, an emoji. Can you see an emoji in the Bible? Like, right here. Um, one of those little exclamation points next to the text. Cushite woman, why? <laughs> they're mad because he married a very, very black woman from Cush. Why? For he had married a very, very black woman from Cush. That is what's going on here. They spoke against him because he had married this woman and her skin color comes into play, as we'll see. Why? Well, let's look at God's response. What is God's response to Miriam? What is the punishment? And friends, read through the Bible. God is very, very good, yeah. But he is very good at making punishments fit the crime. And so what is it that he does to Miriam? Makes her super white. He makes her white, the whitest of whites, whiter than snow with leprosy. So you've got to be kidding me that the passage opens up and says, Moses has married the blackest of black women in the world. His family objects, and the punishment is that Miriam is made whiter than snow. That is what's going on here. What's even more important theologically that's going on is the movement. Think about it this way. Um, When Moses was fleeing, he was fleeing the family of God to join Zipporah. Negative context, right? Later, he's back in charge, and Zipporah comes back. She's allowed to come into the family of God. 
Here with this, this woman, we see Moses is here. Cush is over here. He, he, he marries this woman. She is now a part of the family of God. The Cushite woman is coming into the family of God. What's happening to Miriam? She's being cast out of the family of God. If you see here, at first, Yahweh was just going to be done with her. He was going to cast the Cushite woman is in. The Miriam, the wife of Moses, she's the sister of Moses. Sorry, I'm from the south. The sister of Moses, she is cast out of the family of God. And only by intercession and pleading for mercy is she said allowed to come in. And they wait for her seven days, the number of fullness, the number of completeness, the number of the week, the number of the days of creation before she is allowed to come back in. This is a black and white issue. It's very clear theologically. Moses' biological family, his family of blood, makes a black and white decision and says, no, we're not going to do this. Yahweh makes a black and white decision and says, absolutely, yes. She is welcome into the family of God, and if you were going to hinder her, you're not a part of it. Um, You've heard this phrase, right, blood thicker than water. Have you heard it before? Uh, It's said a lot in the South. Um, It's said a lot in cultures where family is very, very important. And um, the basic meaning of it is that if you have the same blood as someone else, if you are biologically related to them, then that is a more important relationship than your other relationships, right? Um, The way in which, I've heard a new interpretation of it, and by the way, I researched it, and it's new. It's not, it's not, I, I would love to be like, this is the original, but it's not. This is the phrase that I like to say. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the, room, of the womb. Let me say it again. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. In other words, for us, for us as the people of God, the most important binding agent is not our blood. It is the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through which we have been washed And that is much more important than the water of the womb. In other words, if you were born from the same womb, even in that, what's more important is if you were washed and covered in the blood of Christ. And I know that is a hard saying. Um, I actually preached this when I was uh, an intern at First Pres Orlando. And back then, they sent me to... um, uh, the, the mental health unit. I think that's where they send people uh, when they're practicing their sermons because if they forget, it's okay. Um, and I preached this sermon and a woman stood up in the unit and said, you're wrong <laughs> in the middle of my sermon about that because this is so hard. This is so hard. But look, here's what we see in the Bible, right? There is prohibitions about intermarriage. There are prohibitions, particularly in the Old Testament, about having a mixed-race marriage. But what we see is that it is completely and totally theological. Um, Where this comes from is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. So let me read it to you. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, he clears away the nations before you. And when the Lord gives them over to them, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. In other words, the land that they are about to occupy, this is Yahweh's primary concern. That the land that's going to be Israel's as an inheritance forever needs to be completely washed and wiped clean of any other deity. And so that's what's going on. You shall make no covenant with them. Why? You shall not intermarry with them. 
giving your daughters to theirs. Why? Because they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. In other words, the prohibition against intermarriage in the Old Testament is specifically for the land of Canaan. And its specific concern is what we see that happens over and over in the Bible is that if you marry someone from another religion, particularly, (laughs) this is just the way it works out. If a man marries a woman from another uh, religion, that guy tends to go that way. And Yahweh's primary concern is to have a people for his own, a people that are faithful to him alone. And Tommy talked a lot about spiritual adultery last last week, but that's what's going on. It shows up again in Exodus 34. Don't do these things unless you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And then you start, oh, that's a bad word, whoring after their gods, and you make your sons whore after their gods. Again, the primary concern is a theological concern that's going on here. In fact, there are laws in the Old Testament that say when you conquer people outside of the land, guess what you can do? Take wives from there. In other words, the land that is closest to them ethnically, the cultures that are closest to them culturally, those are the ones they are forbidden from intermarrying into because they are the greatest temptation to leave Yahweh. Those cultures outside of the promised land They are more than welcome to take wives. They are more than welcome to bring those people into the covenant. Um, We see this in the New Testament as well, right? uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In other words, don't, if you are a believer, if you've committed yourself to Christ, do not bind yourself, tie yourself, marry yourself to an unbeliever. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Interracial marriage is strongly, strongly affirmed in Scripture, friends. Moses is not some minor character in the Bible. He's not the associate pastor of the Old Testament, right? He is the guy. In fact, in our passage, God says, I speak to this guy differently, face to face. And not, I theologically, and every action that I do right now affirms this marriage. Marrying unbelievers, on the other hand, is strongly prohibited. Why? Because the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. As with everything in the in scriptures, and, and as we hear God's word today, ask yourself, who am I the most like in this moment? Am I like Moses? seeking to bring people into the kingdom of God, no matter their race, ethnicity, no matter their their socioeconomic background? Am I more like the Cushite woman who is seeking to enter into the family of God? Or are we more like Miriam and Aaron, putting stumbling blocks, denying entrance to the family of God based on power or prejudice or fear? How do you define your family? How do we define this family here at New Hope? We read earlier in the New Testament that Jesus teaches us that his community, that his family is absolutely, unequivocally not defined by biological family. It's not because we have the same blood as one another, but because we've all been washed in his blood. We share the same spirit with one another, the spirit of the, that is the Holy Spirit, the same spirit of the triune God is the same spirit that dwells within me. Now, something I I didn't tell you about earlier in that story is when Benita and I got married, at first glance, you could kind of look at that and say, yeah, look, this 
um, white guy in a dominant white culture has married an ethnic minority and is helping make her part of the culture and her family and everything else. In fact, if we look at it from a biblical perspective, it's the other way around. Right before I married Benita's when I came to Christ, and I started going to seminary just to learn about the Bible, and um, now I'm a pastor, great. Uh, but I met Benita there. And when I married her, I was marrying into a family of God. And again, I'm glad this is, this is part probably not going to be online, but my family growing up was, 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 <laughs> was not Christian. We thought we were because we're from the South, but um, that doesn't do it, Right? In fact, my mom said, hey, now that you're a pastor, I get into heaven for free, right? That's where we are theologically. I married Benita, whose mom wakes up at 5 a.m. every morning, Korean mother, praying praying for me. Still, she prays for me, even though I make fun of her and she doesn't know it because of language issues. She still prays for me. Every single morning, she prays for me. And I have been brought into the family of God. And that, friends, is what's the miracle that is what is amazing. That is what people, what angels rejoice over. And I left my family to join the family of God. And we have been part of a family of God wherever we have gone, whether it was in Mississippi or Florida or Texas or here in the Pacific Northwest. You have been our family. And I, I don't always have opportunity to say this, and I just want to say it because we are talking about family, that you are my family um, in every sense of the word. God brought us here, my family, my mixed-race family, my son who didn't even know what another Asian was when we lived in Texas. <laughs> he saw another Asian and said, there's my mom. I said, nope, that's another Asian. You're okay. Um, you have cared for us. You have demonstrated compassion. You painted our house when we moved here. And in the midst of a pandemic, I can't imagine my family with a, a, a child with a heart transplant surviving in any other place. We've had gifts show up at our, um, at our house. We, I, I know one deacon, I'm not going to say names because you'll get mad, that shows up at our house every single week to, with a mask and everything to say hi to our children. We have gifts that are said. And most of all, Tommy and the session continue to allow me to work from home in the midst of all of this. You are our family. The family of God is defined not by blood, not by your background, thank God, not by your culture, the family of God is defined by if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The gate is open to all. There is no hurdle, no obstacle in the way. Repent and believe, and you will be welcomed into this family. Um, I want to encourage you right now uh, to do something weird. Uh, and I, I did this a while back. Get out your phones if you have a, if a cell phone. I want you to take a picture of yourself and maybe someone around you. Because those people are part of your family. I want you to do it right now. I see some people reaching for phones. Get your phones out. I did this once at another church. And um, if you have one of these old flip phones that don't work, you can bring it in and I will find a way to get the picture off of it. I've done it before. But take a picture of someone that you're next to or nearby or maybe someone that's behind you. And I want you to post that if you know what social media is. I want you to post it or send it to me and hashtag it um, New Hope Family. Because we are a family. And if you can't find someone near you right now, it can be your biological family. It can be anyone, friends, because we are all one family together. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us while you're taking your photo. Our Father in heaven, we are your family. We are a family of adopted, misfit children. Every single last one of us brought in by sheer grace. 
We give you thanks and praise for that and ask that you would give us the strength and the courage to invite others, no matter who they are, to come join the family. Amen.